right, we can go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter number 10. It's good to see you all this morning. Glad that you're here. We're going to, Lord willing, conclude the book of Ezra this morning. Which means that we need your prayers as we consider where we're going next. I think I know where we're going next, but I never really know until I sit down at the desk and really put pen to paper to determine where I believe the Lord wants us to go. But we're trying to cover the what I consider heroes of the Bible. Uh, some of those great men of God and women of God that God has used in a mighty and wonderful way. And uh, I think that's what we're going to continue to do and just take it one book at a time. But we'll see how that works out. Uh, but we're in Ezra chapter number 10. And I know there's a lot of verses that we haven't covered, but you'll find that a large portion of those verses are just simply name references. And so we'll work through those pretty quickly. Uh, but do be praying as we approach uh, our traveling nativity. Um, I'm just so excited about it. Brother Kurt and I spent some time Wednesday night after service kind of going through the game plan of how we want it to be set up. And um, I think we've got some uh, a great plan put together. And uh, so this week we were able to get, uh, Carrie was able to order all of our things that we needed for our goodie bags that we're going to be passing out to each home. And so we've got that over here. Uh, we were able to go ahead and get another another neat thing that happened this week or is getting ready to happen is we're just about out of our visitor mugs, which is a great thing. That's a great problem to have. That means we've had a lot of different visitors. And so we were able to get uh, more of those mugs uh, ordered and then we got... We went ahead and got water bottles at the same time for the spring and summer and just put it all into one order because otherwise, who knows if I'll ever get it done. So we went ahead and did that at the same time. And so that should all be coming in hopefully next week. And we're excited about that. Got the uh, the three roofs built for those stations and poles cut. And um, we're, we're well on our way. And I'm hopeful that as time goes along that it'll just all come together the way that God intends. I'm, I'm just so excited about it. I think it's going to be really special. And I, I've been thinking, you know, even because, you know, you have the thoughts of, well, what about the weather? And what about people being home? And what about this? And what about that? And I got to thinking, if just one person comes out to their front porch and we're able to minister to their heart, to me, it's all worth it at that point. And, uh, you know, God's called us to be faithful uh, to what he asks us to do, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So uh, we're looking forward to that. Now, Ezra chapter number 10, as we jump in here, we are calling this chapter the Great Repentance or the Great Response. Uh, either one will be a good title for this passage of Scripture. And as we've worked our way through this book, we've seen God doing some great things in the life of Israel. It has been a bit of a roller coaster. It's had its ups and its downs. And from all of this, we, we've gleaned that there is only one person who has the authority to govern our lives in totality, and that is God Himself. Only the Lord Jesus Christ should hold that rightful place of being our Lord, if you will, of being our King. And as we allow Him to be the Lord of our lives, He will lead and guide and direct us in His will. Does that mean that we will live perfect, sinless lives? No. Israel has proved that to us over and over again, and we've proved it to ourselves, haven't we? That we will fall into sin. 
The danger of falling into sin, especially in the last days, is there will be this tendency to just continue to fall. To fall and to fall and to fall. And we call it the great falling away. Uh, it is referenced multiple times throughout Scripture uh, in connection with the days leading up to Christ's return, which I believe that we are living in currently. And so as we are facing these days, we are susceptible to this great falling away. Every single person in this room, myself included, is susceptible to falling away. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again, not just in church members' lives, but in pastors' lives. Uh, I've seen this going on on a national scale. Uh, and pastors who are considered well-known pastors all across our na nation and all across our world are experiencing this falling away. And so the question then becomes, when I begin to fall away, when I feel that coming on, and I believe it is something that we can distinguish in our lives. I think we can point at it and say, I am experiencing this right now. And it's tied in with emotion, it's tied in with sorrow, it's tied in with shame, it's tied in with guilt, it's tied in with sin. All of this compounded together can cause us, each one, in our own personal way, to grow distant from the God that we serve. And so what do we do? Are there concrete steps that we can take to get back to where we used to be? And the answer is a resounding yes. I believe that's what Ezra chapter 10 is all about. It's about teaching us what to do when we find that we have fallen away a little bit. Whenever we realize that there has been some distance that has grown and formed between us and God, what do we do? Well, the answer in one word is the word repent. But that word entails a lot of different aspects, and that's what we've been working through over the last several weeks in this great repentance. What I'm, if I were to give it a subtitle, we're calling it the biblical steps of repentance. Repentance begins, I believe, with contrition, a broken heart over sin. I do believe it is a necessary step in repentance. I don't believe that it's possible to repent without godly sorrow. I believe that godly sorrow is essential for us to be able to get back on the right track. And so spending some time in contrition over sin is necessary. Number two, step number two was confession, taking some time to pour our hearts out to God and tell Him how we have failed Him. And we, told, we shared with you the importance of being sincere and being sorry and being specific and being surrendered in that confession. Next, there's the covenant. That's the moment that we tell God what we're going to do on our end. You know, I, I shared with you, we're always constantly saying, God, can you do this? God, can you do that? And you know, the Christian life is a lot like a, a game of checkers. Whenever God moves... Oftentimes, He waits for us to move in response. And we just want God to keep doing all the moving, all the moving, all the moving. And in reality, there is an expectation of God's people to do their part. And so that's what the covenant is all about, making a covenant, saying, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, I'm going to get rid of the temptation. God, I'm not going to go there anymore. God, I'm going to put those friends aside in my life. Uh, whatever it is that's causing that falling away, God, I want it to be gone and uh, we've got to make those necessary steps to make that happen. And then step number four is seeking godly counsel. Seeking godly counsel. And whenever we're seeking out that counsel, we ought to be looking for some strong counsel. Not just counsel that's going to be wishy-washy and sugarcoat and beat around the bush. 
had a, a call this week from uh, a person from my past, a, a young man from my past, and he called me, and about once every year to year and a half, uh, I get a call, and he was in a, a tough place, and I was thrilled to get a chance to spend some time talking to him on the phone, and as I did that, uh, the one thing I shared with him, I said, now you understand that you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat whenever you call me. I'm going to I'm going to just state plainly for you what I believe you need to hear. And uh, that I believe that's why he called. He was looking for some strong counsel, uh, seeking sensitive counsel, folks that will be sensitive to your situation. Uh, it's one thing to be strong in your counsel, but there's also a need to be sensitive in counsel, to be understanding of people's upbringing of the lives that they have uh, lived and the different tr struggles they've experienced, uh, seeking sensitive counsel, and then seeking spirit-filled counsel, counsel that knows the Word of God and uh, is prepared to share that with you. Now, those are the first four steps. There are two more steps that I want to go over with you this morning, and uh, we'll conclude this book of Ezra. The fifth step in Biblical repentance is the step of correction. Correction. Look with me at Ezra chapter number 10 and verse number 9. The Bible says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. Now remember, this was commanded. The first step of obedience after having fallen away is oftentimes the most essential one. The first moment that God clearly states for us what He is wanting us to do and then we do it is probably the most important step in getting back to where God wants us to be. Oftentimes, that's where we get hung up. God says to do something, but it's been so long since we really obeyed His voice. It's been so long since we did what He asked us to do that now it almost feels awkward. Because there's this distance that's formed and there's this struggle, this inner struggle that's going on. But the reality is it's that step that will lead to the next step of obedience and the next step of obedience. Look on at verse number 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. Now, as we look at this passage of Scripture, Ezra states plainly what God is wanting them to do, and then they do it. That's the proper order. Oftentimes what we do is whenever we know God's wanting us to do something, we want a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth confirmation that that's what God wants. And really it's all about stalling. I mean, if we're honest about our sin, it's the fact that we're just not ready to give it up yet. We're just not ready to to start getting back to the kind of relationship we used to have with God. I need just a little bit more time to live the life that I want to live. And that's the reality of the situation. If we're just being completely honest, 
That's the reality of the situation. And so as we work our way through this corrective process, these are all things that we must do. You realize how Israel said that in verse number 12. I think it's significant. It says, so must we do. The idea is God's not going to do this. Ezra's already done it. You know, we're not looking just for the leaders to do it. The idea is we're going to do this. That's the idea. And, And I shared with you at the very beginning of this chapter, repentance is a work that we do. We often say, God, would you help me repent? God, would you help me do the right thing? And all the while, God has said, I've done everything I need to do. My Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The Word of God's been given to you. Uh, You heard the preaching of God's Word. You know, I I have given you everything you need to get victory, to get past this, to get back close to me. I've given you everything you need. Now you've got to do your part. And that's what this is. This is the practical application of repentance here. So what is step one? Well, I've already shared it with you. It's obey God. Step number one is obey God. And I do this by submitting my will to Him. How do I obey God? By submitting my will. The idea is I have all kinds of dreams and all kinds of you know, aspirations in this life, things that I want to accomplish, things that I want to do, but I become obedient to God when I surrender all of my right to myself. The only way that I can obey God is whenever I'm no longer interested or concerned about doing what I want to do. And that's a hard place to get to, isn't it? Because we do all have dreams. We do all have aspirations. And there's nothing particularly wrong with having dreams and aspirations and goals. But there is whenever it gets in the way of doing what God wants. So we have to submit our will, and by submitting our will, we can then be obedient to God. I've also found, and this is just a side note, don't have this written in my notes, we obey the people that we love. I believe that love is the greatest motivation to obedience, not fear. Now, fear is a great motivation. That's my next point here in just a moment. Fear is a great motivation, but if you want to know what I believe the greatest motivation is to obey God... It ought to be our love for Him. I loved my mom and dad enough as a child that I didn't want to disappoint them. I didn't want to hurt them. It it hurt me far worse. The punishment was far greater for me in hearing the words, I'm disappointed in you, than there ever was in any whooping I ever got. If you had to give me a choice between my dad being disappointed and just getting a random whooping, I'd pick getting a random whooping every single day because I didn't want to disappoint my dad. Why? Because I love my dad. And the same motivation ought to drive us to obedience to the God that we serve. A deep love for Christ ought to drive us to obedience. It's that same love that will cause us to submit our will to Him. So, Step number one, obey God. And of course, they did that at the beginning of verse number nine when they all gathered in Jerusalem within three days. I'm sure for some people that was not an easy thing to do, to drop everything they were doing and to find a way to get to Jerusalem within three days of the command going out. That's a pretty miraculous thing, a pretty tough thing to do, but they got it done. The second step of correcting our lives in repentance, not only obedience to God, but fearing God the way he ought to be feared. 
Look at the end of verse number nine. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. A healthy fear of God is essential to correcting the wrongs of our life. Now again, I don't believe that the fear of God should be our primary motivation for obedience. I don't believe that that was ever God's intention. I believe that love was what God intended to be the main motivator. But you also better believe that fear is a great motivating force for obedience. I, as a young, young child, the fear of what would happen to me if I talked back to my mom was enough to keep me from talking back to my mom. More than one time I got backhanded, waylaid, didn't even know it was coming. And the fear of that happening again caused me to not do that again. You see, we oftentimes want to sugarcoat the fear of God and call it just a healthy reverence. I don't believe that's the case. I think we ought to be terrified by the holiness and greatness of God. And I don't believe that there's any injustice in saying that. It ought to cause us to tremble when we think of the greatness of our God. Most churches across our nation today, this is an aspect, this is an area that just stays hush-hush. It never comes to the pulpit. Fearing God the way that God ought to be feared. In fact, on the contrary, what most pastors are doing, if you want to call them that in our nation today, is they're trying to take God and bring God down to our level so that there is no fear. There's no difference. God's just like us. We're just like Him. And, And there's such danger in that. Why do you think that we see the irreverence that we see in our nation today? Why do you think that it's okay in people's hearts and minds to not only subvert authority, but to mock authority, to taunt authority, to hate authority, literally to kill authority? Why is this happening? Because there is no fear. And if we want to get more specific, there's no fear of God. No fear of God. No fear of retribution. We're taught across all forms of education that we all came up out of monkeys and that the monkeys came up... I don't know. What do monkeys come from? The amoebas. It goes from amoebas to tadpoles, to frogs, to fish, to birds, to... Uh, where would we go from there? Monkeys. Doesn't it sound foolish? Mm-hmm. You know why? Because it is. It's completely foolish. But the reason I'm saying all this, if you really believed that you were the descendant of just a mindless mammal, and that when you died, you were just going to rot in the ground, and it was just over, why wouldn't you live however you wanted to live in this life? Do whatever came to your mind, whatever dark imagination that you could formulate. Why wouldn't you just go ahead and do it? If there's no retribution, no ramifications, no consequences. Unfortunately, that's the world we're living in. There is no fear of God. What do we have to submit? If to obey God, we have to submit our will. What must we submit to fear God? Well, I believe we have to submit our pride. Submit our pride. Pride is a word that is used today. It's a, it's a champion word. It's a word that people use to celebrate 
well, in the case that I'm referring to, homosexuality, which is sin in the eyes of God. And I find it interesting, to say the least, that they use that specific word to describe the movement. I mean, literally at the top of God's list of things that he hates is a proud look. It's at the very top of the list. These six things doth the, doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him, a proud look. It's at the top of the list. Over and over again, pride is brought up as something to condemn. And I believe it's that pride that causes the fear of God to disintegrate. So, number one, obey God. Number two, fear God. Number three, we have to hear God. Look at verse number 10. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. At this point, any one of those leaders could have looked at Ezra and said, Who do you think you are? You just got here. You haven't been here very long. You, you literally walk in. Here, we built a temple. We are the ones that came here. We're the ones that risked our lives. We're the ones that have been inhabiting the land now for years. You walk in and you think that you've got the right to say this to us, but that is not their response because they recognize Ezra is not stating to them his own opinion. He's giving them the word of God. And whenever they understand that and they grasp that and they hear that, God begins to work. Step number one, obey God. Step number two, fear God. Step number three, hear God. And to hear God, we have to submit our minds to Him. We have to give up all rights to our own minds and say, God, would you begin to teach me and show me what you want me to learn? Number four, talk to God. This one's tough. They're all tough. But there's something about doing what verse 11 says to do. Look at the beginning of the verse. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers. When you come face to face with the holy God to tell Him all the unholy things you've done, it's a humbling experience. At least it should be. Taking time to talk to Him sincerely and lay out for Him all the ways that you have failed and to beg for His mercy and to beg for His grace is an essential step in correcting the wrong. Step number five, seek to please God. Look at the end of verse number 11. It says, And do His pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. To do His pleasure. Now here's what you're going to find. Here's what you're going to find. In pleasing God, there is great pleasure. Oftentimes we think that in the pursuit of pleasing God that we're just going to have to live a miserable life and that is just not the case. Can I tell you that pastoring this church has been the greatest pleasure of my life? I mean, I am just honored and thrilled and excited to be here every single time. I can't think of a time that I didn't walk in the doors of this church and be thrilled out of my mind to be here. I say that to say, most folks would think it'd be the exact opposite. Man, that just, you know, I just can't, that's not at all the way it is. When we are living in the will of God, when we are living in, in, in service to Him to please Him, there's no greater pleasure than pleasing God. I like roller coasters. Some roller coasters. 
I don't know if I like every roller coaster. Have you ever been on the slingshot? Do you, does any of you know what the slingshot is? I don't. Have, have you been on it? I have not. Is it the thing that like pulls you back and then lets you go? Yes. Yeah, no. Yeah. Never. Okay. I would All right. Do that. <laughs> I've done the slingshot twice. The first time I said I would never do it again. The second time, I'm trying to remember, were you there the second time I did it? I'm pretty sure she was there. And so I had to do it. Yeah, Kings Island is where it was at. And they, they put you in a ball. It's, it's, you know, from a distance, it looks about this big. And they, they, they draw you down to the ground, and they strap you down into the ground. And then some random count, it's never the same thing. They release that ball, and the ball just goes like this, like a slingshot. And then you go up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. And it's terrifying. I mean, it is, it is adrenaline pumping. My heart was going like this the whole time. I mean, I was petrified, but man, it was exciting. I've been on some of those, big, those other big roller coasters. I've been on some big trips in my life with my dad and his business. I've done a lot of exciting things. But there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that compares to sitting across the table from a lost soul and speaking the gospel into their life and watching the Holy Spirit take the word of God and do the work of the new birth right there in front of you. And to get up from the table with a person who entered that room, a lost person, and is leaving gloriously birthed into the family of God. There is nothing. Nothing that compares. Submit our will, our pride, our mind, our mouths, our desires to Him. And then the last one, the final step of correcting that which is wrong, is to follow God with each step that we take. At the end of verse number 11 and into verse number 12, it stated exactly what the people are supposed to do next. He says, And do His pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives, then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. In obeying God, fearing God, hearing God, talking to God, pleasing God, following God, we can correct God helping us that which is wrong in our relationship with God. The final step of repentance. i got to drive this one home. I wanted to spend a little more time on this one, but I think we can get through it. And this is a tough one to swallow. It is a tough pill to swallow. The final step of repentance is consequences. Consequences. We all have scars, and I don't mean like, you know, figurative scars in our lives. We do have those, but I mean, we literally, we literally all have scars. I've got a scar on my wrist right here where I shoved a starhead bit into my wrist. I was working on my back deck, and I was trying to put the brackets into place, and I was kind of, you know, turned around this way, and as I was putting the drill to the screw, I went and shoved real hard, hit the trigger, and when I did, it came off and just went right into my wrist. I had another Phillips head bit. I need to stop. I probably need to stop holding the screw so much whenever I'm screwing it in, but I had another Phillips head bit that went right there into my finger. I got another scar there, and I got one over here from a box knife incident. That one's kind of embarrassing because I, I, I built my whole house, and the worst accident that I had was... Opening a box with a box knife. 
something happened. I, I had a, the box here or something, and I was cutting back this way, which we all know is real smart to do that. I was cutting back toward my hand, and it slipped and just whoosh, right in there, and I still got a scar there. But each scar that I have, well, don't count these two, because obviously I didn't learn from the first one, otherwise I wouldn't have gotten the second one. But I learned with that scar there, don't ever cut towards you with a box knife. Now, you'd think I'd know that, but just in case I ever forget again, I can always see that scar right there on my thumb saying, Seth, do not do that thing again. In the same way, I believe that God allows scars in our lives. Consequences for our actions that don't just go away with God's forgiveness. You see, when we ask God for forgiveness, oftentimes what we're actually asking God is, God, please remove the consequences. God, I don't want to deal with the consequences of this. So, Lord, would you forgive me? But what we're really saying is, we're not saying, God, forgive me. We're saying, God, please don't make me have to go through this. Even though I should, don't make me have to go through this. And that doesn't always work out. I've sat across the table from folks before in counseling that have done something that was literally against the law. And they've asked me, I don't understand why God won't. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't understand that there are consequences to what you've done? Couldn't figure out why they couldn't get out of the facility that they were in. I said, you, you, don't, you don't lose the consequences just because God removes the sin. In fact, the consequences are one of the most essential parts of never going back to the sin. The reason I never, ever, never, ever, never since the day I sliced my thumb open have I ever cut toward my cell with a box knife again. And I'll tell you right now, unless there's just some weird scenario where I'm upside down and backwards and I have to cut toward me with a box knife, I don't plan to ever do that again for the rest of my life. The point I'm trying to make is that God allows scars and they are not a bad thing. In fact, on the contrary, I believe with all my heart that some of the most beautiful things that God leaves on the lives of His people are the scars that are the result of past sin. It is a caring thing that God does. When I discipline my children, I try to do it in such a strong way that they don't want to do that again. That they'll think about it long and hard before they decide to do that again. What are the scars that God uses here? I believe there are three specifically. The first one is the scars of happenstance. What I'm calling the scar of happenstance. Look at verse 13. But the people are many, and it is a time of much rain. Now, I want to remind you at the end of verse number 9, the people are trembling because of what God is about to do and because of the great rain that's about to hit. The great rain is not, it's not just mere coincidence that in the midst of this moment of repentance, there's this massive storm apparently brewing. So massive, in fact, that people are petrified and trembling because of it. And so in verse 13, the people uh, say in response to Ezra's command, but the people are many and it is a time of much rain and we are not able to stand without, neither is this a work of one day or two, for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. There is a 
a circumstance here whereby they're not going to be able to get this done as quickly as they want it to get done. There's this massive storm on the horizon. Their circumstances God is using to correct them and to keep them corrected. And I believe that there are times that we have consequences or scars of happenstance. I'll give you just one example. Oftentimes we, we will try to pray about a financial decision and oftentimes we've already got our minds and hearts made up before we ever pray. A lot of times we don't even pray. We just go for it. And then we get into the financial decision. And we get about six months in and we look back and we realize we've made a terrible mistake. You can't just pray your way out of debt. You got to work out of it. But there's that scar of happenstance where now I look back on this poor decision that I made financially that's another big one that comes up a lot of times in counseling is poor financial decisions that lead to conflict within the life of a marriage. And, and folks just want to get rid of the consequence. And my answer to them is that it doesn't work that way. That scar is there for a reason with great purpose to make sure that you don't ever do this again. And it may take you 5 or 10 or 15 years to correct the wrong decision that you made. But let that serve as a scar. A scar of happenstance. To remember never to do that again. Now that's a really shallow one. There's a whole lot of deep ones too. Scars of happenstance. Number two, there are scars of humiliation. Look at verse 14. Let now our rulers of all the congregations stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the, force, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us, only Jonathan the son of Azahel and Jehaziah the son of Tikvah were employed about this matter, and Meshulam and Shabbatai and the Levite helped them. So this is the list of the men who are going to be used of God to, to accept these different ones that are about to come forward and admit what they've done. Basically, God's using them in the place of Ezra uh, I believe it's five men in total. They're coming together and, and all these different leaders, all these different men of Israel are having to come to them and say, okay, this is what we've done wrong. Basically, they're going through the process, if you will, of divorcement. And, and there's only five men employed in the process. And so what is given to us next, uh, let's see here. Look at verse 16. And the children of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers and all of them by their names were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. And so they begin the process of separating themselves from their wives in a legal sense. And what is given to us from verse number 18 all the way over to verse number 43 is a list of the names. For all eternity, we are going to know specifically who it was that had disobeyed God in this matter. A lot of times when you see a list of names, it's a great thing. This is not one of those times. This list of names are all of the men that took strange wives from the land and disobeyed God in doing so. There is this public humiliation that takes place. It is a scar that cannot be removed. 
This is the word of God. And not one jot, not one tittle shall in no wise pass away. And so for all eternity, it is inscribed in the word of God who it was that had failed in this matter. And I believe God oftentimes uses the scar of humiliation to drive home the thought of never returning to the sin. The last scar that we see in this passage of Scripture is the scar of heartbreak. The scar of heartbreak. And we mentioned this to you a couple weeks ago, but look at verse 44. All these these men that had just been listed, I'm not going to try to read all the names because it'll get dicey. Okay, and I just... We'll just skip on past all the names. But look at verse 44. All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. Heartbreak. Total and complete annihilation of the heart. These people that they had loved, children they had born, that now had to be separated. Heartbreaking situation. But here's the idea. God had a plan to make sure that Israel never returned to the same sin again. The consequence, the price they had to pay must be high enough to ensure that they will never return to the sin again. Does God really use these kinds of scars throughout Scripture? Is this just a one-time situation? Is God still using scars like this today? Well, I think you could ask Moses about the scar of happenstance. He struck the rock twice instead of once. And as a result, his circumstances did not allow him to enter into the promised land. I think you could ask Jonah about the scar of humiliation. He was on a ship and all of a sudden a great storm arose. And after all the men searched their own hearts to determine whether they were the root cause of this great wind, this boisterous wind that had arose, finally Jonah had to admit in front of all of these strong sailors that he, in fact, was the reason for the great storm. So he was cast overboard, swallowed by a great fish, spit up onto dry ground, and then had to go stinking into the land of Nineveh to preach the Word of God. That would be humiliating. You could ask David about the scar of heartbreak after his sin with Bathsheba in the killing of Uriah, the child that was conceived within Bathsheba would eventually die. God uses these scars. Not because He doesn't love us, but because He does. We all have scars. We all do. Every one of us do. Don't ever let Satan convince you that that scar is something that disqualifies you, that that scar is something that steals away your value, that that scar is somehow a mark of weakness and failure, because what God intends that scar to be is a reminder that as His child, He has greater plans for you and He doesn't want you to go back there. He doesn't want you to keep falling. He doesn't want you to keep failing. He wants you to get victory. And that's what those scars are all about. When we follow these steps early and often where sin is present, they will keep us from falling completely away. If you get take the time to read Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, which I encourage you to do so, what you'll find is to every single church age, God stay, except for one, there's one that God does not say this to, 
but out of those churches, nearly every single case, God uses one word to describe to them how to get what was right and make or what was wrong and make it right. It's the word repent. Repent, 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 repent. Read Revelation chapter two and three, and you'll see it there. Let's pray.